on that note, it's interesting because last week I started out um, feeling angry and annoyed about some of the, the current misogyny that's in ministries across the country and the different individuals that pointed it out. And uh, I felt angry about all of these men out there who are keeping out all of the women that God is bringing in. But then after listening to Maggie yesterday, I, I just felt sad because they do not know how much they're missing out on. Like there is a world of beauty and truth and wisdom that they are not, they're not taking in. And that's a tragic, tragic piece. So we are grateful for you, Maggie. We are grateful for all of the voices in this community. Debbie and I were talking about this actually recently. And um, this is what, what it's all about, right? I mean, like as a community of people, we believe one of our core convictions is that we all carry the identity of God within us, which means that the Spirit is speaking through each and every one of our stories if we will make space to hear it. And so part of our jobs as, as pastors of this church is to remind you that you are pastors of this church, that, that together we are, are carrying this thing forward. Sorry, that is a tangent, but it's really important to note because I think it speaks to the core of how we are in this thing together. We're in a series right now. Tonight will be the last night of said series. We are calling this series Greater Than. This series is based on Jesus' promise in the 12th chapter of John, where he is sitting around the table with his friends for one final meal, and he's looking back on the life that they lived, and he can feel that his time is slipping away. The hourglass is almost empty, and his friends' faces are reflecting that reality. And Jesus pauses, and he says, guys, it's been good. The ride has been sweet. There has been sorrow. There has been highs and there has been lows, but there has been joy. It has been good. But here's what's great, is that once I'm gone, the good news will still stay. There will be people who will come onto my path and into my purpose and take this thing much further than I was ever capable of doing in my 32 years of life. When he said those words, he was speaking about you and you. And he was speaking about us. This promise that in the Gospel of John, we have seven signs, seven miraculous stories that are not preserved just for us to stare at. They've been preserved for us to step in, to replicate in our lives again and again as we faithfully try to follow the way of Jesus. And so that's what we've been looking at this whole series. Tonight, though, if I may, uh, I'd like to do something mildly different. I don't want to look at just another thing that we are to do because I don't think that's what John is asking us to do. We've done that for six weeks. Um, we've looked at all these different invitations, and it's beautiful. And I think the more that we individually sit and stare at those signs, I think there's more inside of those that we'll be pulled into. But this seventh thing isn't something about that we need to do as much as it is a reminder of who it is that we go with in all of our doings. I want to show you what I mean. Our text is going to be in John 11 tonight. It's a long text. I'm going to give you a paraphrased version of said text. Before we get into the text, though, I need to introduce you to this woman because she is on center stage. This is Mary of Bethany. And we don't know much about Mary of Bethany. In fact, the scripture doesn't really tell us much at all about her. But when the scripture does bring her up, it's always fascinating to me. We have three different spots in the New Testament collection of books in which we find Mary of Bethany. The first spot that we find her is in the 10th chapter of Luke. Mary and Martha are at home. Martha is in the, cookie, in the kitchen cooking, 
Martha is in the cooking kitchen. Martha is making cookies while she cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> and Mary is sitting at the front of the class. Jesus is leading a small group of sorts, and Martha's not psyched about it. Martha says to Jesus, will you tell that girl to get in this kitchen to cook some cookies alongside of me? And Jesus says, no, she's, she's good. She's made the right choice. The next time we see her is in the 12th chapter of John. And again, she's at the feet of Jesus. The scene is a party scene. The people are getting down because, well, Mary and Mother Martha's brother, Lazarus, just was raised back up. He died and then he undied. And so they're having a party to celebrate. And in the middle of the party, right before the desserts are being brought in, here comes Mary, center stage. Not a word is spoken. And she gets on her knees in front of Jesus. And she breaks open this bottle of expensive perfume, pours it all over his feet, wipes it with her hair. And she's at the feet of Jesus. And just like at the first time in Luke 10, somebody else has a problem with it. Immediately when the perfume gets poured, there are voices from the table who are upset. They start doing some serious virtue signaling from the table. And they're saying, don't you know, Jesus, that that bottle of perfume, we could have sold that and given that money to the poor. Won't you tell her to stop? And Jesus kind of like dials in his inner Obama and says, stop casting stones and start doing something about it. Stop being just a critic and start contributing on some level. What she is doing right here is beautiful. In fact, in the future, when people set out to tell my story, they won't be able to do so without telling hers. It's the only person he ever said that about. If anybody's going to ever try to tell my story, you're going to have to tell Mary of Bethany's story too. Just pause and take in those parallels right there. The first story and the third story. Luke 10 and John 12. Both scenes... Mary's at the feet of Jesus. Both scenes, somebody is screaming at Mary. In both scenes, Jesus is defending Mary. Two out of the three scenes, Jesus steps in and says, back off. What she has done is the right choice. What she is doing is beautiful. It's the third scene, the middle story between the two that has captured my attention is where we are going tonight. It is the seventh sign in kind of the climactic moment in the Gospel of John. And it's a heavy moment. Let me tell the story like this, because this is a story that, again, is a little bit lengthier, but I want you to feel the weight of what's being said inside of it. And so imagine it with me. Mary and Martha are in their home. They live in Bethany with their baby brother, Lazarus. We don't know when, but at some point, Lazarus came down with a sickness, and right away, that sickness came over him very quickly. His skin was turning yellow. His fever would not break. He was sweating. It was a mess. And as Mary watches her younger brother slipping away very quickly, she sends word. She decides for one last Hail Mary, one last attempt at saving baby boy's life before he is completely gone. And so when she sees everybody, she sees everything going south, she immediately sends word for the healer who's in the north. She calls on a servant. She says, go find Jesus. And when you get to him, tell him that the one that he loves 
is sick. So the servant goes. The servant takes off. He reaches Jesus in the Transjordan region, north of the Jordan region. And and here's why Jesus is out there. Jesus is hiding out in the sticks with his boys right now because things have gotten so politically hot in the city. It's not safe for him to be there at this time. And so he is laying low, trying to stay out of sight and out of mind of all the peoples. But Mary knows where he is. So Mary tells the servant where to go. The servant goes a day's journey, travels north and finds Jesus. The servant speaks up, tells Jesus that the one that you love is sick. Now I imagine when I hear this story in my head that there's an urgency in his voice, but there is a confidence in his tone because he knows what Mary has said about Jesus. And so he knows what Jesus is going to do. He knows that Jesus will get up and go. I mean, Mary said that if you tell him that the one that he loves, Lazarus, baby boy, Lazarus is falling apart and he is our final hope, I know he's going to get up and go. But Mary has sat at the feet of Jesus long enough. She knows enough about who Jesus was to know what Jesus could do, which is why it's so devastating to realize what Jesus does. The text tells us that after the servant brings this urgent and heavy word, Jesus doesn't pack a bag. He doesn't grab some water and go. He sits down. In the midst of devastation, in the midst of pain, in the midst of unthinkable damage being done to this young boy, Jesus doesn't move. He doesn't flinch. How many of you have stood where that servant is standing here, confused as to why Jesus is just sitting over there. Uh, You don't get why Jesus isn't moving, why Jesus doesn't seem too bothered about what's going on. How many of you have been next to a person or a problem or a predicament of any kind of creation where it all is falling apart and the only thing to make it right would be if God somehow would enter in and make the pain stop and the problem go away and you wait and you pray and you fast, you call your friends, you tell them all to do the same thing, but nothing changes, the life is lost, the problem still stays and there's this gaping wound hanging over your life. The servant goes. Says Jesus, the one you love, is sick. And Jesus hears him. And then he sits back down. For Jesus to be sitting when Jesus should be saving, it's it's a hard thing. The wound becomes very wide. I don't think we all know that from personal experiences. In fact, Natalie, I don't know if you're in here or not, but I read the words you wrote about um, your friend's mom, how she was wonderful. A badass of a woman, which is your words, not mine. I'm not cursing you were cursing. That's not my fault. Don't email me. (laughs) But when I read the descriptor in the tribute that you wrote about her, there's a gaping wound that is open wide. And I would imagine that prior to her departure, there were messengers sent. The painful image, think of Jesus sitting down. And it's one that the servant now has to bring back to the sisters. He walks back that day's journey. And every moment he's being haunted 
by the fact that he's going to have to tell the sisters that their Messiah isn't moving. And then he gets to the house. And how I see it in my head is he is, he is he's pausing in the doorway, kind of waffling. He's, he's stubbing his toe on the earth as he fidgets with the brim of his hat. And, and then they say, where is he? He's not coming. You know, Jesus, he didn't, when Jesus needed R&R throughout scripture, it's fascinating to me that he never goes back to his actual family. He always goes back to these people. As much as Lazarus was Mary and Martha's baby brother, he was also Jesus' baby brother. And so imagine their shock when they're looking around the servant who's standing in the doorway expecting Jesus to be directly behind them and he is nowhere to be found. He's not coming, the servant says. Mary's got to be rattled. What do you mean he's not coming? Did he say anything? Now I've heard that sometimes he can just send a word with the carrier and that's sufficient. The problem goes away. Did he tell you anything to bring back home? Did he say anything? Is he doing anything? The servant just shakes his head. He just said he's not coming. He, he just sat back down. The text tells us that Mary and Martha feel the weight of that moment that they're in. Mary looks at Martha. And then they look at their brother who's jaunting, pale and dying. There were no hospitals at this time. It wasn't pretty. It was ugly. There's no palliatives. There's nothing to alleviate the burden that they were bearing. It was suffering, and it was dying, and it was young, and it was hell. And Jesus should have done something, but Jesus just sat down. And so Mary and Martha do the same thing. They sit down. They are out of options. And they're out of a lot more than that. Mary not only was in the midst of losing her Lazarus, but she was also in the midst of losing her Lord. She was in the midst of losing everyone that she loved, but she was also in the midst of losing everything that she thought she knew. And they sit down. Two days pass, and then her brother passed. And John 11 says that when they buried the young boy, at some point in the funeral out there in Bethany, somebody started to stir out in the sticks. Jesus stands up and Jesus says to his disciples, I want to go to Bethany. I want to see Lazarus. Now the boys are confused when they hear this because, Lord, we were here, you were there, the servant spoke up, you sat down. Why do you want to go now? If you go now, they will kill you and likely us too. But then Jesus only makes matters worse because Jesus says, I want to go because Lazarus has died. If he's dead, then it's done. There's nothing we can do about it anymore. If you weren't going to go to do the healing, why would you go now to do the mourning? If you go, you will die. If you go... They will get you. They will get us. Jesus, he ends up saying a few more kind of cryptic words to the guys. And eventually the disciples, reluctantly, they get up and they start to walk. 
And after a day's journey, when they're finally close to the city, the servant who was sent to get Jesus initially, he now sees Jesus approaching in the distance. And he turns around and he sprints back to the home and he bursts through the doorway and he sees Mary on the floor and Martha on the floor and the tears dripping down their faces, making mud on the ground. And he comes close to him. And he says, he's coming. I say, who's coming? He's coming. Jesus, he's up the road. Jesus and his friends, they're not far away. They're coming. They're almost here. And this is where to me, um, if you move too fast through scriptures and you miss the tone of the text and you miss the imagery that's being provided and the setting and the characters and the plot unfolding before your very eyes, you're going to miss the point. Because there's this powerful line here that jumps off the pages every time I turn to John 11. The servant goes in the house, says they're here, they're coming, they're close. And the text tells us that when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary didn't. Mary stayed at home. The servant announces with, with joy I don't think there's any expectation that, that Jesus would be able to reverse the course of Lazarus, but Jesus was coming, and so somehow the burden would be alleviated on some level. Ladies, he's here. And Martha says, where? And she gets up, and as she's about to sprint out the door, excited because the Lord has drawn near, she turns around and she sees that her sister is staying put. Mary, aren't you coming? And Mary just shakes her head. I'm not coming. I have nothing to say to him. I'm going to stay in the house. You go on ahead. And I can just imagine Martha, because I have an older brother, I get what that power dynamic is like. I can imagine her, though, saying, sis, you got to get up. It's the Lord who's drawing near. And Mary's saying, I know who it is. And yet I also don't because I don't really know him like I thought I knew him. I thought I understood who he was and what he was about. I thought he loved our brother. And yet here's our brother dead, buried, gone. And that person that you're so excited to go out and see, he sat down. He sat down on us. And so watch me as I sit down on him. I think about Newton who proved that an object in motion stays in motion with the same speed and in the same direction unless acted upon by an unknown force. That is what death is, is it not? It is the unknown force that flips our entire lives upside down. I don't care how close Jesus may be down the street, I'm just going to stay put. I have no sense of balance anymore. Everything that I thought I had is now something that haunts my life and I don't want to move. Martha goes out of the house, but Mary sits down. And when Martha goes out, she meets Jesus on the road and she does what 
um, evangelicals tend to do. She asks the big questions. What happened? Where were you? Why did this happen? And Jesus has this lengthy discourse that we would now characterize as realized eschatology. And, and this is a, a, here's what this is. The Gospel of John is written, it's the latest book that's written in the New Testament, and it comes after Paul, who has been preaching in Ephesus for years about how Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. When Jesus didn't come, people got confused, and so John puts this story in there to help explain the confusion and provide some clarity and say that I am the resurrection, present tense, and that death is just a vapor, and that's all fine and good, but tell me when you've been by the grave of somebody you love, if somebody giving you some lesson on systematic theology is really going to take away your pain is that what you're looking for in that moment at the end of the conversation we see Martha going back to the house where Mary's still sitting inside and it's striking to me that Jesus doesn't follow her Jesus isn't shouting behind Martha where she's at Why isn't she out here? You told her I was coming, right? The servant saw me. I know he saw me. Why didn't she come? Jesus doesn't barge in. He doesn't berate Martha for not bringing her sister, for forcing her sister. He doesn't break down the door and say, you know, Mary, I just said some really profound theological thoughts to Martha. And if you had just leaned in and listened, it really could have helped you out. He doesn't do that. The Bible says that Jesus stayed out of the house. And I'm so moved every time that I read that because think about the power inside of that. These are the stories inside of the story. Jesus doesn't force his way into the house. He stands at the periphery of her pain and her process and he provides dignity and decency to her. He's not going to choose to intrude, climb through a back window. The Bible says that he knocks on the door gently. It's on you whether or not you want to open it. He just stands outside the house. And he says to Martha to say to Mary, just tell her that I want to see her. Tell her that I'd like to see her. And then he stands there waiting. And in the same way that the woman sent a representative to Jesus, Jesus now sends the sister to Mary. And Martha comes in and Mary looks at her and Martha says, Mary, the teacher wants to see you. And Mary says, but I don't want to see him. But she says, the teacher wants to see you. Prior to, it was the Lord. And this is an important note. Martha says that in the midst of the pain, in the midst of what you do not know, there is still a teacher in your midst and there are still some things that you could learn. He's still the teacher, Mary. And he still wants to see you. Mary goes out to where Jesus is. And this is where we find Mary where she's always been. She goes out to him. She falls at his feet. And she weeps again. And she says, where were you? Why weren't you there? How dare you? If you were even a sliver as good 
as you said you would be when I was listening to you in our house, when my sister was making you a meal, you would have showed up, but you weren't there. You sat down. Where were you? And this is, think about the parallels here. In the two other stories of Mary of Bethany, she is at the feet of Jesus, and somebody is screaming at her, and Jesus is defending her. First, it is her, it is her Martha, the sister from the kitchen, telling her that what she's doing is wrong. Next, it is the disciples from the table, telling her that what she is doing is wrong. Here, it is death, telling her that she's all alone, that it's all over. And the most profound scripture in all of the Bible, and I'm not saying that to be cute or cliche, but if you were asking me to land on one text that tells the good news of the gospel in the best way, I would move past John 3.16 and move you to John 11.35. It is two words. Jesus wept. He, he didn't give her some big theological treatise. He just held the heaviness with her. He went into the wound. He was with her. Even if he knew that at the end, the story the story was going is that Lazarus was going to undie after Lazarus had died, he still wept before he went into the wound. He stood there with her as it all was falling apart. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that in this moment, we don't have the God of Job where Jesus stands over Mary who's weeping at his feet and says, how dare you? Where were you when I made the elephant and Orion's belt and the Milky Way? Where were you? Who do you think you are? Instead, we have no words, just tears and a witness inside of the wound. That's who our God is. That's why I love Jesus. That's why I've given my life to following Jesus, not because I have pain that I need help with, but because in my pain, God is pained. In my struggle, God enters in. I don't know what it looks like, but I do know there is a closeness, there is a proximity to our pain. And I know this story goes on and it gets sensational. I know that Jesus is going to roll back a stone and a dead man's going to come out, but that's not the point of the story. This story is not about the raising of Lazarus. It is about the raising of Mary. That's what it's about. And if we make it about the wrong thing, it becomes about something that is so, it so exceptionally happens that when it does, it does more harm than good. Instead of seeing how when we actually enter into pain together, we can find new life on the other side. John 12 is the next story. John 12 is the, is the third story. Mary goes from this place where she is cursing out Jesus in the wound that will not go away to this place at John 12 where she is pouring out their most expensive thing because she just gives it all away. She recognizes the gift. In this room together, this is what we do. We hold umbrellas for one another. If we take seriously the invitation of Jesus in the Gospel of John to step onto this path and into his purpose, we will enter into pain. We'll have to leave the sticks, the safety, and then go towards Jerusalem. We'll be in the crosshairs. And we'll weep. But if we do so together, we'll keep walking. Pray with me.
Jesus, God, you are good. God, we are so grateful that our tears are your tears, that our pain is your pain, that God, you, you are close, and that you're not just for sunshiny days, God, but for you the hard spots too, when we feel all alone. God, when we are going through the 10,000 hells that we will go through, remind us again and again that we are still being held and that your tears are falling next to ours. Christ, we are grateful. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. When I think about all the life that happens in and outside of this community and all the pain and suffering and sorrow. Um, I think you're right, Matt. That the point isn't that Jesus shows up and answers the way we want and the timing we want. The point is withness. The point is, is that we follow and love a God who stands with us in the uncertainty and the sorrow, and the suffering. And so often, I think we experience that withness through one another. That's when we experience the love of God. Like Matt showed on that last slide, it's when we stand together that we experience God's peace and his comfort, no matter what the circumstances of our life are. So tonight, when we come forward for communion, we can be reminded of a God who loves us so much that he set self aside and he stands with us no matter what. On the night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples and he broke bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. And when we drink from the cup, we remember. During the music, we're gonna invite you to come forward and you'll take the bread and you'll dip it into the cup and the gluten-free elements will be in the middle and the regular elements on the side. And together we remember that we follow and love a God. A God that our stories are tied with. My story, your story is tied to Jesus's and that changes everything. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand for the Lord's Prayer. But today is All Saints Day. It's a time in our year that we remember those that we love and that we've lost, those that have died in the past year. So right after the Lord's Prayer, we'll have a little music. We'll remember some of those friends and family members that we love, that we've lost this past year. And then right after that, our communion servers will come forward and you can come forward while we sing together and take communion. And while we were remembering, we know that 
we will all be remembering many people far beyond those that we've lost this year. But as we remember, we remember together. And we hold the sorrow and the heartbreak. And we hold it together with a hope. Hope in a God that's... So please stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's remember.